HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. for a live broadcast on heritageradionetwork.com. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is Greenhorn Radio. It is May. It is raining here in the Hudson Valley, and we are behind getting things in the ground. But that's just how it is. And I'm talking today to Anastasia. And she is in the desert southwest. How is your rain over there, Anastasia? <laughs> uh, we don't have any right now, and we probably won't have any for a while. Today is actually looking like the hottest day so far. So, um, what is that? You know, what does that it's mean typical. Hot? What kind of hot? What kind of hot? Yeah. Uh, well, it'll probably get a little over a hundred today. I think it almost made it to 100 degrees yesterday, and then it didn't really cool off last night, so so it's kind of a balmy morning. <laughs> um, so tell us about tell us about your little journey, your little journey. Well, no, maybe just tell us about the town of Tucson and your garden there, and then we'll go into your journey. Okay. Um, well, I. Uh, I live just west of downtown Tucson, not far from the Santa Cruz River, right at the base of A Mountain. And um, this neighborhood used to be kind of the the breadbasket of the Tucson Valley. Um, right, right near where I live, there's been a bunch of new development going on that you saw for yourself, Severin, when you came. And uh, when they were excavating for that, they found some old acequias, which are the um, irrigation canals, that were about 4,000 years old. So that predated what they had originally thought was there by about 2,000 years. And that makes this particular area the oldest um, agricultural site north of the Mexico border. Um, which is pretty significant and not really talked about very much here. Um, anyhow, the soil is actually really great where I am, and it's lacking in uh, coeche, which is like a calcium carbonate kind of thing that builds up in the soils. 
and most of the rest of the town. And so I've got, like, a little garden that I grow, just vegetables for myself. And I've got chickens and turkeys and goats. And about as much as I can get away with uh, living in the urban core of the city. We'll see how long that lasts. (laughs) I mean, you're right downtown, and you're, like, literally a tiny, tiny bike ride from the center of the the city with skyscrapers. Or not... I guess they're not scraping the sky, but they're kind of big. They're trying to. (laughs) (laughs) But then... You can just go out with your goats three steps out the other direction, and then you're off in in nature world. Yeah, I live right at the edge of the desert, and um, that's really why I was so drawn to this part of town. Um, Tucson has expanded out east and north and south, and it really hasn't um, gone too far west because, you know, we have, like, protected land to the west in the Tucson Mountains. So it's it's really, it's a good situation. And uh, I don't know, for the most part, we're having a bit of a fly issue right now. Um, I don't like to think that it's all my fault, but uh, certainly the flies enjoy my yard <laughs> uh, with all the animals and things. And that's probably been one of the biggest challenges for me in trying to do what I'm doing here on my property. Um, the thing illegal I'm doing is keeping a male turkey. Um, you can have goats in the city. You can have birds. Of course, you can have a vegetable garden. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how long those regulations are going to stay the way they are, or, or I don't know how long they're going to continue to allow things to go unregulated because... More and more people are wanting to do things like this in their yards, and I'm not entirely sure how compatible it's going to be with uh, the urban environment. So Tucson, Arizona, is famous for many things, and we'll talk about some of the cool projects that are going on there and some of the, the alternative projects that are bringing people like me to come visit. And, but you've arrived at Rangeland Management, and at urban homesteading after having kind of a long personal exploration of agriculture in many forms. Do you want to talk about your experience in um, getting to this place and and why you've arrived at this solution for now and what you might be doing in five or ten years? Uh, Geez. Well... (laughs) Um, that's kind of a lot to talk about, but I'll, I'll try to be concise and feel free to interject um, or stop me if I get, you know, on too much of a roll. But I don't know. I mean, I just, um, yeah, I got into doing uh, season agric- seasonal agricultural work when I was really young, like just out of high school and and uh, I really loved it. I think a lot of what I loved about it, you know, was the sort of bizarre social scene that was occurring around it, you know, particularly uh, blueberry raking in Down East Maine, which I know quite a few people have done and um, know about. And then, of course, a lot of people don't know about that. But... uh 
Yeah, I loved it. And one of the things I think I loved also very much about it was just the physical aspects of it. Um, I just got really into using my body in that way and, you know, doing this really physically grueling work that was really repetitive and, you know, out there in the heat and the sun and whatever and um, figuring out, you know, how to use my body and how to maximize what I could do with my body to get the most done. Uh, We were always being paid, you know, by the pound of blueberries or by the bushel of apples or by the number of trees for a lot of the tree planting jobs that I did. So, I don't know, it becomes kind of like a sport. And, um, and uh, yeah, I just really got into that. And I usually did well at those jobs. I made pretty decent money. None of what I did, you know, as far as that goes, was organic um, or terribly earth-friendly. So it exposed me to, you know, I guess a lot of, like, the ugly realities of what goes on in agriculture, of what we do to the land in order to maximize the product that we can get out of it. And, uh, you know, we do it at the expense of a lot of things, a lot of people. Um, I don't want to paint, like, a totally rosy picture of seasonal agricultural work because, obviously, uh, it's not that way for a lot of people. Um, But my particular experiences were, I don't know, a little bit more on the idyllic side, I think. Um, I wasn't exactly counting on it to feed, like, a big family that I had either. I was just a punk kid, you know, and I only had myself to worry about. Um, anyhow, what do you mean about the unique social, explain about the unique social atmosphere that happens in the context of, like, kind of ephemeral community around crops? Yeah. Well, you know, when I first did it, I was, you know, it was in 1994, and, uh, well, that was a while ago, you know, my first year raking berries, and up in this really out-of-the-way part of Maine, you know, where really low population, really, really local population, people who grew up there their whole lives, you know, everybody spoke with thick accents, and it was kind of an area of Maine that's always been, I think, a little bit infamous for not catering to the vacation land. Um part of the economy of Maine, you know, you get past Ellsworth and all of a sudden there's no signs telling you where anything is, you know, it's like, okay, if you're a tourist, kind of turn around and just go back. We have our own thing going on here. I mean, most people up there, they make their money from blueberries or clamming or fishing, lobstering, digging for worms, making Christmas wreaths. Um, That's pretty much what they're was, anyways, um, for work around that time. And then you'd have this mass of people coming into that area and coming into that culture during the blueberry harvest. And at the time when I started, there was a few Mexicans coming that had come, you know, would come from really far to work there. But it it wasn't, there weren't that many Mexicans or people from, uh, Central Latin America. Um, 
it was a lot of local people for sure, and then, quite frankly, just a lot of really great freaks and interesting people and uh, people who did other seasonal jobs like tree planting. That's how I got hooked up with all the other things I did. Tree planting, apple picking, you know, uh, beets in Minnesota, cranberries out on Cape Cod, things like that. And, uh, you know, kind of people who are living more of a vagabond, hobo lifestyle. Some out of, you know, necessity, perhaps, and others because that was just a lifestyle that they were choosing. And they could go and do these jobs and make a living and make a decent amount of money without having to, you know, look a certain way or act a certain way. Um, and it was it was interesting, for sure. And I was one of the people that that kind of lifestyle really appealed to. Are you there? Sorry, I put it on mute because the tractor was revving up. We just got mm, 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 a lot more um, beef cattle just came. But how did you get oh. from... That's them from thinking like a hobo to thinking like a rangeland manager. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, so I, I kind of stayed on the road for about 13 years, more or less. Um, I did I did do some tree planting work after I settled in Tucson. Still, I was taking off whenever there was jobs and leaving and doing that. Um, uh, anyhow... I don't know, pretty much all that work just really dried up. Things really changed by, I think the last year that I raked blueberries was 2001. Um, that was the year September 11th happened. And in that last year, um, there had been a couple of really, really good years for berries where people made really good money. And so the word had kind of gotten out to more people um, and a lot of, you know, really serious uh, migrant workers from, uh, you know, Mexicans and people from other parts, I'm sure, too, of um, Central America who are, like, living in the States and doing those jobs. I don't know what their story particularly was. My Spanish wasn't any good back then. But, uh, yeah, there was an influx of that, and then there was also an influx of, you know, more mechanical harvesting that was going on um, originally, I think the reason why these jobs stayed um, was just because it was not possible to go over such rugged terrain with machines to get these berries. And so there was always a need for people to do it by hand. And they made improvements to the harvesters and, um, and stuff like that. You know, they started giving more of the irrigated, better... Uh, land to these machines to rake instead of the people. And that last year that I did it, we had a terrible drought. The berries were awful, and the only stuff that was any good was uh, was these irrigated berries, and they wouldn't let any of us rake them. I mean, I was living essentially in this little camp in the middle of a blueberry field looking at stuff where I could have made probably like $500 in a day if they had let me in there. And I wasn't going to get to have any of it. I didn't even make enough money to pay for my gas to drive back to the Southwest. So 
I ended up having to go further north and work there for, you know, like another month just to make enough money to kind of get to where I needed to go. And between that and seeing all the machines and, you know, other things that were going on in the world, too, it just, it it seemed like it was really fading away and really dying out. You know, and then the tree planting was kind of the next thing. Um, We started going to wars overseas, and there really wasn't money that was being invested in things like reforestation um, or, you know, fuel reduction projects. Those were other things that people that I worked with were involved with doing work in the forest. Work just dried up. And uh, so it seemed like a good time to go back to school and it was and I just I just finished hallelujah (laughs) hallelujah what's your degree uh my degree is in rangeland ecology and management and um so you know I had that experience doing the forestry related stuff working with agencies and getting a taste for what goes on in natural resource management although it wasn't specifically you know, range management, but I have a background in plant science and a lot of, you know, just my own personal natural history experience. And I wanted to get more into working with animals, and so I thought that studying range would combine those things really well. You know, agricultural interests, animals, plants, and some of the knowledge that I had already about Management, and I was right about that. It ended up being a really good fit, and I guess I've gotten more into more into it than I even realized that I would. It's been good. So, so now you now you might even consider ranching as the next phase of your life. Um, yeah, I would consider that on a small scale, uh, of course. Ranching is um, not the easiest thing to really get into (laughs) Um, because of the prices of land, um, because of the fact that it can be really difficult to make money, I think. I think right now ranching, as we've known it, is in the process of being uh, to where it can be a lot more diverse and it can include a lot of other aspects like conservation, um, you know, habitat restoration, wildlife management, and, you know, a lot of other things. So, so that's good because it means that there's some flexibility in there, and um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, right now, I... I'm more interested in going and working on ranches where I can hone my skills, my horsemanship skills, my animal handling skills, and learn more of that stuff hands-on. And uh, I don't think settling into a piece of land and figuring it all out on my own is something that I necessarily want to repeat again right away (laughs) because there's still some things I want to learn. Well, um, and I, so I, I'd like that, to learn them in a way that's a little bit more streamlined and direct than what I've been doing. 
Oh, remember that lovely lady Reba from um, Kibera, the the lawyer from Wyoming? Yes, I do. Um, so she was on. I had she came onto the show, at la- like I don't know, maybe two episodes ago, and she was talking about all the different opportunities at um, the Maroney Farm and all the different enterprises that he's stacking there and inviting other people to stack there that are really changing the yeah. face of, of ranching. Yeah, I've just recently, um, I've just recently started getting to know them. Uh, those were people that uh, a lot of folks were steering me towards throughout my academic career when I'd be constantly raising my hand and saying, but what about this? And, but why can't we try that? And, you know, you know what? If you want to talk about those things, you need to talk to Dennis Maroney. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I met him a few times. He presented at a couple of the classes I was in. And I also, you know, saw him at the Kivira Coalition Conference this last year. And, uh, yeah, I went out there a couple months ago, and I met with them, and they are doing some really some really cool stuff. Um, I think that Dennis is a person who's really thinking ahead and is probably more willing than the average rancher to experiment and to go outside the box and figure out uh, new ways of adapting and making things work. And that's exactly what we need, you know, if, if that kind of thing is going to continue because there's, there's a lot of challenges, you know. He's dealing with horrible drought, you know, this sort of continuing process of land degradation that's happened from, you know, things that happened long before he ever showed up on his land. Um, there's a lot of struggles, so it's all about being willing to change and adapt and experiment and find new ways. So let's just, just for people who, because some, let's start from a little bit of an educational backstory for the listeners who are not to- totally cuvered up yet. Uh-huh. <laughs> the ranch, like, um... People, we look at the Southwest, we see all the beautiful cactuses. Um, we don't necessarily all know that, that some of that is rangeland and that people are making their living raising beef yeah. and pulling that beef as meat. Um, do you want to describe just a little bit of the, like, arid west rangeland economy, just as briefly as you can? And then when you're saying that economy is suffering and conservation is becoming a part of the business equation. Explain what you mean by that. Okay. Um, yeah, so out here, you know, what, what ended up evolving into being is that most of the, the land in the West is publicly owned land. It's either federal or state, or there's also a significant amount of tribal land. Um, so ranches, uh, ranches typically only have a very small amount of private land that the rancher owns where his homestead is. Usually those areas are places where there's water. And this is something that the government set up and encouraged both in order to settle the West, um, to make it available for people who are willing to come out here and populate the land. Um, And also, you know, later, too, the model got tweaked with the Taylor Grazing Act in the 1930s to try and protect 
the land so that it could, you know, continue to be used. Um, They're having major, excuse me, major problems with people just coming out and unleashing huge herds of cattle and trampling everything to death. Um, So typically a rancher in the West, you know, might have something, you know, along the lines of like 22... I don't know, maybe 100 acres of their own private land, and the rest of it is leased um, in a, a grazing allotment of some kind. And this has become, like, a really contested issue because these are our public lands. Um, people feel that the amount of money that ranchers pay for these leases is... Is it on? Yeah, you guys are both back. Hi. We're back. I'm sorry I dropped off. I don't know why. I apologize. These things happen. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I was at really exactly. I was probably taking too much time explaining something. No, you were doing you were doing a really great job explaining about the history of ranching and the incentives set by the government and that ranchers generally don't own the majority of the ranch land that the cattle yeah. are grazing, but that they own their homestead where usually there's some water or facilities. Yeah. And But then you said something about the Taylor Grazing Act, and I wanted to know more about that. And then we can talk oh boy. about the price of these. Will you tell me a little bit more about the grazing, uh, Taylor Grazing Act? Well, okay, now you're really challenging me. I know I paid attention to this in school, but I don't know if I can do the most eloquent job on the spot of explaining it. Um, I mean, basically, the Taylor Grazing Act was an attempt at uh, managing the range to prevent overgrazing and overstocking and the sort of tragedy of the commons that was in the process of occurring out in the West. Um, and the Taylor Grazing Act... That's very eloquent, Anastasia. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, and basically, I mean, that's where, that's where the West got fenced. Um, you know, that's where things really started being divided up, and people started drawing lines, and it wasn't just this big open-range free-for-all over millions and millions of acres. Um, and... You know, things like this, I mean, it was it was a good thing, but it's also, you know, that was a long time ago. Things have changed, and perhaps there are other ways that we need to tweak our policies now. Um, that's, I guess, about all I feel qualified enough to say about that. But, I mean, in essence, what it leaves us with is a situation where um, ranchers don't really own enough of their own land in... In, in a lot of instances, in order to have a financially viable cattle operation, they really need more land in order to do that. And so they rely on federal and state lands and these grazing allotments. And, yeah, a lot of that's subsidized to a great degree. Um, as people's interest has increased in recreation and in using these lands in other ways, uh, you know, there's been a conflict developing there. Uh, people don't want to go on a hike and see cows, and people don't want to 
be camping out next to cow pies. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of push for shutting down a lot of these grazing allotments in certain places. And, um, you know, obviously that has a lot of impact on ranchers. So, but, you know, each, each case is different. There's really no, like, blanket statement you could make or blanket argument for or against doing that that would be applicable to every situation. I think that's the mistake that both ranchers and environmentalists can make. And, well, don't get me wrong, some ranchers are environmentalists, perhaps, um, but each each situation is unique and different in its own regard, and I think that um, I think that it's really hard for uh, policy to address that. So there's a so that was beautifully said, Anastasia, and very much in the spirit of the Kibera Coalition, which looks to find the radical center that works for all rural user, user land users. Uh-huh. And um, come to conversations. Come bring bring the conversation to um, a good end, and and bring land management theory that improves the quality of life for both ranchers and uh, conservation values. That okay? I was trying to say something, but I forgot it because I was trying to push <laughs> it up in a badly way. Oh yeah. So there's the issue of economic viability for the ranching community. And then uh-huh. there's another issue, which, which is how the management of the range is kind of determined by these allotments uh-huh. and how that kind of is not necessarily the, the way that if we use our most progressive holistic management information, like rangeland management science, yeah, that might make different practices. So how do you resolve that, or what are the ways that, uh, cool people are attacking that issue. Well, I mean, really, I think ultimately what has to happen more and more is just, and I think it's starting to happen. I hope it's starting to happen. Um, you know, different factions coming together and having conversations with each other. Uh, the agencies that are managing the allotments, um, need to work more closely with ranchers and need to be able to be more flexible. Um, That's something that's been really difficult. Uh, Everything's sort of set in stone, and uh, and how you're able to tweak things on your particular uh, allotment can have a lot to do with just who you have as the range technician or range consultant coming out and talking to you. Some people are more open to uh, different ideas and experiments than others. And um, and it would be nice if, uh, if the rules could foster more flexibility and ability to just deal with different situations that come up. Um, also, you know, academia has a lot to offer. And um, so figuring out a way that you know, management and science and real on-the-ground stuff and rules can all kind of get mixed together in the right concoction. I mean, 
that's what has to happen. More dialogue, more flexibility from all angles, and that's what gives you the ability to treat each situation, you know, in a way that makes the best sense for that situation. And ultimately our goal is economic viability for the ranches, improved uh, grazing, that the land that the land is uh, improving rather than becoming degraded. And yeah, I mean, that, I think what people fail to recognize is that we're really, really dependent on rangelands for a lot of our water, the quality of our water, um, the amount of open space that we have, wildlife habitat. I mean, there's a lot of other things that go on on ranches aside from just cattle being raised there. And in an arid place like Arizona, where heavily irrigated, intensive crop agriculture isn't necessarily sustainable on a large level, the fact that we can produce meat and animal products off of the land without altering that landscape and without using these additional inputs of water, is that's really important to our food security. So... Um, it's, you know, there's a lot more going on than, than just that. I think it, it's all connected and it's all really important. So there's much to learn about rangeland and uh, ranching in general, and I think you're right, Anastasia, that there are more ranch voices needed in, in the food discussions that are going on, in the climate change discussions that are going on and that the, the level of literacy that we have about agriculture generally um, in our society is dwarfed only by our illiteracy around the issues of ranching. And yeah. uh, so, <laughs> so what should we sure. do? What should we do? We'll just keep on, we'll keep on going on. What should people read, or where should, where should those who are interested and have a little cowgirl or cowboy um, butting out inside of them, what would be your suggestions for folks with skills and bravery who who want to start exploring these issues? Um, well, gee. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of a tricky one to answer. Like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure... Um, of course, I love the Kivira Coalition. I love what they're doing. I feel like the atmosphere around what they're doing, what they're creating, is really positive and really open. Um, they are one of a lot of groups that are doing restoration projects and various things on different ranches that give people opportunities to go out and visit those places. Um, I think more and more conservation groups, I mean, I can really only speak for local groups in the Tucson area that I know about, um, are doing more projects that are involved, you know, with ran ranchers and ranches. Sky Island Alliance does a lot of projects here and on the other side of the border in Mexico. Um, I mean, the Audubon Society has a, has a place. that There's a lot going on. I think that most of the NGOs out there that are doing this kind of work and talking about conservation are doing something that interfaces with ranchers and ranches. Um, and so for people who um, 
Uh, well, I think that that could be a really good way in, just to kind of get some exposure. Come on That's out. A good Here's the visit. We're real friendly. <laughs> We're real friendly. Uh, <laughs> so another one to add to that is Holistic Management International. They uh, have courses you can take in holistic management. And I yeah. know the Colorado uh, or the Land Conservancy is another group to, to check out. We didn't get into everything about Tucson, Anastasia. You have to come back on the radio again. I do? Yes. Oh, wow. Heavy. No, I'm just I kidding. Know. I talk really slowly. I'm, I'm a throwback to some other time when people could talk slowly, and um, I just haven't caught up. Well, um, it's much appreciated, and I thank you so much. And um, I think I'm going to be coming back out to your area in December. Yeah, we have some we have some missions. Oh I'll boy! Right off there. <laughs> uh, this has been Anastasia Raven Robin. Yep. Yeah, Raven. And um, if you want to know more about her world, how do you do? You have any internet presence? I don't I don't have Facebook or MyFace or you know, any of that. Um I yeah, I'm kinda kind of hide out a little bit. Um So so you're just gonna have to come back and listen to the radio again when she comes back and we'll talk more then about Tucson and the the desert harvesters and all these other things that are happening. Yes. Like I said, come on out, pay us a visit. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Severin. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, I have to get off because I don't have any more time, but I'll tell you the announcements next time. time. Okay, bye. Check the website. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.